Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love for us. And Father, I pray for your forgiveness for sin in our lives and for your restoration of us on a eternal basis through the work of Jesus Christ, but also in a day-to-day -day basis as we walk in a world that forces us to confront temptation and difficulty and challenges our faith and our trust in you. Father, I ask for your help. And I thank you for your kindness. I thank you for your graciousness towards us. I thank you for giving us a chance to pray and repent. Father, I pray that being given this chance that we'll take it and honor you with our lives. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read a passage today from 1 Samuel chapter 4. I love 1 Samuel. I, uh, I love uh, the first, second Samuel uh, into First and Second Kings and the story and the narrative there. I think it's rich. Maybe I should teach all the way through it again. It's been a few years, but I love it, and it's rich, and it's powerful. And, uh, and that's what we're going to read from today, beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, and we read the word of the Lord now. It says, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. So this is something that is certainly common in the ancient world. Uh, two nations go to war. The Philistines had the upper hand in the territory at the time. Uh, they had come uh, as a seafaring people and settled in the Middle East, and now they were uh, threatening uh, the people of Israel. This is a time in Israel before there were human kings. This is a time uh, known as the time of the judges. Uh, this is after Moses brought Israel uh, through the wilderness and after Joshua brought them into the promised land. They had settled there and they had been there for a very long time. And uh, Jerusalem was not yet the capital. Uh, Jerusalem was not yet the capital city. There was no king to have a capital city. They were people with judges and they were called to be faithful to God and often they failed and they were unfaithful to the God who had brought them out of Egypt into this land. Here the Philistines go out to battle with them and we find a little later on in our reading today uh, the condition, the spiritual condition of Israel is not very good. And Israel goes out to battle and 4,000 men of the army die in the field. That's 4,000 fathers and sons. That's... Uh, that's a crushing defeat. And it says in verse 3, And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? So they begin with a simple question, I think a question that many of us face whenever we're suffering or whenever we're enduring hard times. The question is, something terrible has happened, something bad has happened, why has it happened? You ever find yourself asking that? Why is this happening to me? Why has this happened? That's the question that Israel is asking. God had promised to be their God. He had been their God. He had given them a home. He had given them land. He'd given them houses. He'd given them livestock and he'd protected them and now they had gone out to fight against the Philistines 
it wasn't the end of a war. It was a kind of a preliminary fight, and they'd fought all day, and they'd gone back home, but they did not have victory. Instead, they had defeat. And the question is, why? Why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? That's their question. Here's their solution. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, so that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So, Israel said, We have been defeated. Clearly there is a spiritual reason why we've been defeated, because we are a uh, theocracy. We, we have God as our king. So we have been defeated. Uh, the problem then is that God was not with us today when we were out to war. Their solution then. If God wasn't with us today when we were out to war, let's force Him to be with us the next time. Why has the Lord defeated us today from before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us so that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. In other words, God wasn't with us at the start. Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the Spirit of God is meant to dwell in that place that depicts the throne of God with the two cherubims on top of essentially the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which is also called the mercy seat. It's a picture of the throne of God in heaven. That's why there are, are cherubs on top of it engraven, carved in, and this, this Ark of the Covenant, this holy thing that God had spiritually and divinely impressed upon its, its makers to craft with precision accuracy. And so you have these cherubim with their wings outstended, uh, out extended, uh, making up the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, this box in which were the tablets of the Ten Commandments, pieces of manna from the time in the wilderness, this place that was kept, that would be kept in the temple that was kept now to be kept in a tabernacle in a place where only the great high priests would go before it and offer sacrifices in the Holy of Holies. And it was called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept because that's where God dwelt. And if God dwelt there, if God would meet the priest there, then it was a holy place. It was the holiest place. It was the holy of holies. And so they said, if God was not with us today, we'll go pull His Ark from its holy place and we'll bring it out among us so we will force God to be with us tomorrow. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. Now God does not physically dwell on top of a golden box. But that golden box that Israel had was symbolic, it was a picture, it was an earthly depiction of the throne of God in heaven, and so it is where God agreed to meet Israel. It was where the Lord of hosts who dwells between not golden cherubim, but real cherubim, real super angels. It was where he agreed 
to be with them. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, both bad guys and corrupt guys themselves, were with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So they have taken the Ark of the Covenant from the tabernacle, from the holy place, from the holy of holies. And they have put it in the hands of corrupt priests in Hophni and Phinehas who robbed the people and abused their power. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, the camp of Israel, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does this sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And the Philistines knew about this. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. Now they don't mean the one true God. They just mean the deities of Israel, as we see in the verses ahead. And they said, Woe to us! For such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us! Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. They knew a little bit about what had happened in Egypt. God's reputation had preceded himself, but they didn't know very much about Yahweh. They were about to get a crash course lesson. Be strong, they said, and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you don't become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. You get a picture of the power dynamic in the Middle East at that point in time. Israel had become the inferior nation to the people of Philistia, to the Philistines. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also, the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. So, they are summarily defeated. They asked a legitimate question, why has God allowed us to suffer this first defeat. And they came to the wrong conclusion. Their conclusion was, we are not bringing God into the battle with us by way of the ark. So we will go get the ark like a good luck charm, like an idol. And we will parade the ark around with our army and surely with the ark God, who has agreed to meet with us at the mercy seat, at the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, will be with us, and we will have victory. And instead, 30,000 people died. Let's skip ahead now. Chapter 5. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God, and they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. So this is Philistine country. When the Philistines took the Ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon, and they set it by Dagon. Dagon, you know, decently well-known god of Philistia, fish god, Dagon, one of the gods of the Philistines. And they bring it, the Ark of the Covenant, into a temple of Dagon, and they set the Ark of the Covenant of God before a carved, a molded, 
a sculpted image of their great god Dagon because Dagon had had victory over Yahweh. Why? Because the people of Dagon had had victory over the people of Yahweh and so they put the ark there. Verse 3, And when the people of Ashdod, the city, arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. Only this time, the head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore neither the priest of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So they set the Ark of the Covenant before their God. And they come in the next day. And their God has fallen over from its place, prostrate on the ground before the Ark of the Covenant. And this really shows the impotence of idolatry, doesn't it? Because it says, So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. What kind of God needs human beings to pick him up off the floor, dust him off, and put him back in his place. What kind of nonsense is this? So the next day, because they didn't get the message, Dagon is on the floor again, only this time his hands, which represent his power, and his head, which represents his authority, are broken off. And that ought to have been the end of the worship of Dagon, but it wasn't because we get in verse 5, Therefore neither the priest of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. And what we are going to see here is a real difference between the one true living God and worthless idols. I want to read to you a passage from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44. Here are the words of our God. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and the Redeemer of Israel, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And who, and who can proclaim as I do then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people, and the things that are coming shall come. Let them show these to me. If there is some other God, then let's hear what the other God has to say about the future. Verse 8, he says to Israel, Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Those who make an image, an idol, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a god or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed, and the workmen, they are mere men. 
You want to serve a God made by men? Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up, yet they shall fear, they shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals. He fashions one of these gods in coals. Fashions it with hammers. He beats it and works it with the strength of his arms. What kind of God is fashioned by the strength of human arms? Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and he is faint. The man crafting the idol, the man crafting the image, is just a man who gets hungry and tired, who gets thirsty and faints. Why would you want to serve a God made by a mere man? Why would you want to serve a God? Why would you want to cry out to a God for food? Why would you want to cry out to a God for security? Why would you want to cry out to a God for, for the quenching of thirst? Why would you want to trust in a God who is made by a man who gets hungry and who gets thirsty and who falls down and faints? He continues in verse 13. This is God ridiculing idolatry. The craftsman stretches out his rule, his, his ruler, his measuring sticks. He marks one of these gods out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane, you know, a plane where you, you would mold something from wood. He marks it out with a compass and he makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. The God is made from trees in a forest, right? He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn. What happens when you grow a tree? You grow it to burn it. For he'll take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and he bakes bread with it. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes a god to worship out of the same thing that he burns to bake his food and to warm him in winter. What a powerful god. He makes it into a carved image and he falls down to it. Oh, like this is some great thing. He burns half of the tree in the fire, and with this half he eats meat, he roasts a roast, he's satisfied, he even warms himself and says, I'm warm, I've seen the fire. And the other half of the tree, he makes it into a god, his carved image, and he falls down before it, and he worships it, prays to it, and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. And here, this is verse 18. They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. Idolatry is blindness, spiritual blindness. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. I've also baked bread on its coals. I've roasted meat and eaten it. 
Shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Because that's what an idol is. There is only one creator. There is only one living God. And any false imitation of Him is an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. As spiritually, his soul. He's trying to feed his soul on ashes. That's what happens when you burn wood. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? That's what an idol is. That's what an idol is. A lie. You can just see someone going on a long journey and making sure they're clutching their idols. Making sure they're clinging to their good luck charms. He cannot deliver his soul. Nor say, Is there not a lie? in my right hand. Who do you want to go with you through the journey of this life? The one true living God or a lie? A joke? God says, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you it's not the other way around. Israel didn't craft a God. God formed Israel. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions. Isn't that the messianic work of Jesus Christ? How do you blot out transgressions? How do you blot out sin? I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. That's Jesus on the cross. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Return to me. Repent. Come to me. For I have redeemed you. Let's go back now to the story. So the ark is done its damage to Dagon by the power of God in the temple of Dagon. Verse 6 of chapter 5, 1 Samuel. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. The Philistines are suffering. And when the men of Ashdod, where the ark was being kept, saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us, and Dagon, our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They began to have plague. And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. Now, Notice, this is an interesting thing. 
the, the lords of the Philistines, the leaders of the Philistines, which we would assume includes a leader from Gath, assume that Dagon is not powerful enough to contain the God of Israel. So rather than admit the God of Israel is greater than anything we are dealing with, they simply say, let's try one of our greater cities. Let's try Gath instead of Ashdod. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. So it was after they had carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city of Gath with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron, another city in Philistia. So it was as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistine and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel. Let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. Now let's pause here. What happens to the idol Dagon when it falls out of its place? The people pick it up and put it back. Dagon requires his people to move him around, right? But the God of Israel has no trouble moving the ark around uh, wherever he wants it to go. He's going to exercise his own return to Israel. Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city and the hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. I mean, you can't just walk up to Israel and give it back. No one wanted anything to do with this thing. Israel is their enemy. So they said, here's what their religious leaders said if you send away the ark of God of Israel do not send it empty but by all means return it to him that's God because the Philistines realize this is just a box return it to him with a trespass offering now we begin with Israel asking the question why have we suffered this loss of 4,000 men to the hands of the Philistines? And their evaluation was, we didn't carry our good luck charm with us into battle, so we suffered this loss. They got the answer wrong. That's not why they suffered the loss. Now the Philistines are asking, what should we do here and why is this happening to us? And the conclusion that the pagan Philistines come up with is, we have trespassed against the God of Israel and he is punishing us. So if you're going to send the ark back because you want these tumors and plague to stop, send it back with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, what is the trespass offering? which we shall return to him. They answered, five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. In other words, <laughs> you're going to send, you're gonna send the, the, the 
a symbol of the plague in recognition that God has achieved a victory over you. And you're going to send five because there are five lords of the Philistines and God didn't just have a victory over two of you or over three of you. He had a victory over all five of you. There is no greater level of Philistine that was superior and unafflicted by God. So you're going to make an image. You're going to carve up five tumors, which, ugh, and five rats equally, and you're going to plate them in gold, and you're going to fashion them in gold, and you're going to send those back with the Ark of the Covenant as a sign to God that you surrender in this spiritual war with Him. Therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. You give glory to your conqueror, to the one who has defeated you. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he did mighty things among them, did they not let the people go that they might depart? Now therefore, make a new cart, take two milk cows which have never been yoked, hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves away from them. You see, what you get here, if you're reading behind the text, is the people of the Philistines are the ones pushing for this ark to be returned to Israel because the people are suffering. But the leaders of the Philistines are very hesitant to return something which they view as a symbol of their victories over Israel. They don't want to do it. The, the, the lords and the leaders of Philistia, you know, they don't, they're very hard-hearted about this. And that's why the diviners and their religious people say, don't be like the Egyptians. Those fools hardened their heart and they wouldn't let Israel go. They wouldn't set Israel free. And so God brought plagues upon them. Now you have something that belongs to God, something that belongs to Israel, and you're hardening your heart, and you won't let it go, and look what's happening to all of us. So they said, look, if you need proof, if you need evidence, here's how you figure it out for yourself. If you need evidence that this is from God, and this plague isn't just a coincidence, this isn't just a normal pestilence or a normal sickness, put the Ark of the Covenant in a wooden cart. Take two milk cows, not the kind of cows that you would take out into the field to plow the ground with, not the kind of cows who are used to pulling carts. Take two milk cows who have given birth to calves and take their calves away and hook the milk cows together. Now what should happen? The milk cows should be furious that they're being yoked up to a milk cart because that's not what they're used to doing. And furthermore, if they're going to go anywhere, they're going to turn around and go right back to their calves back home. That's what milk cows would do. So they say, take the milk cows, take their calves away, hook them to a cart with the Ark of the Covenant, and, verse 8, then take the Ark of the Lord and set it on the cart and put the articles of gold, which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go. And watch, if it goes up the road to its own territory, towards Jerusalem, towards Israel, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done this great evil to us. But if not, if the cows don't go anywhere, then we'll know that it's not his hand, that this has all happened by chance. So the men did so. They took two milk cows, hitched them to the cart, and shut up the calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right or the left. They looked like they'd been yoked together in a team pulling a cart 
For dozens of years, they knew exactly what they were doing. These cows knew exactly where they were going. They left their calves behind, and they marched the ark straight to Israel. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. They just follow the ark on the ground, walking in wonder. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes, and they saw the ark. These are Israelites. And they rejoiced to see it because they didn't wake up that morning thinking that the ark that the Philistines had taken was going to come floating back into their land on the top of a cart pulled by two cows. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there, so they split the wood of the ark and they offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of it and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on this large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings, and they made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord, one for Eshdod, one for Gaza, one for Eshkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel, on which they set the ark of the Lord, which the stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beshemesh. Then he struck, this is God now, then God struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. They received the ark back, and they immediately mishandled it. They did what they were commanded not to do. Israel had still not learned its lesson. That God is holy that he is to be respected and revered. He's not to be treated casually. He's to be treated in such a way as he has commanded us to treat him. He had commanded Israel how to handle the ark. He had told them what to do and what not to do. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? Now this is why they had suffered the loss of 4,000 men in the first place. And this is why they had suffered the 50,000 men in the second place. Because their question was about how they could use and manipulate God as a good luck charm for their own purposes. And at the other end of this judgment, they asked the right question. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And the answer is no one. No one can stand before God. And no one would stand before God were He not gracious enough to provide priests to Israel. Were He not gracious enough to look on these sinful people who are priests and to see their acts of consecration as a, as a means by faith of approaching Him in a manner in which He has prescribed because He is holy. 
And you don't run to God on your own terms. You run to God on His terms. You don't approach God on your own terms. You approach God on His terms. And through Israel, God had given them the terms that the priests should consecrate themselves and they should treat these things as holy. And if they consecrated themselves and if they treated these things as holy, then God would be with them and they could approach Him and He would be with them. And to us, God has ordained a living sacrifice and a great high priest in Jesus Christ through whom we may approach God. And Jesus Christ is the only means by which we may approach God. We don't get to approach God on any other terms. And all those who think that they will approach God apart from faith in Jesus Christ will come to the same end as the 50,070 men of Beth Shemesh who thought that they could just lift up the Ark of the Covenant and approach God on their own. All those who try to come to God apart from Jesus Christ will face His wrath and eternal damnation. Now finally they ask the right question. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. So the men of Kirjath of Kirjath Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and they consecrated Eleazar to keep the ark of the Lord. Now they are approaching this as they should. A consecrated priest. So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath Jerim a long time. It was there twenty years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord, meaning they were not faithful to the Lord for two decades. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve Him only, and He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroths, and they served the Lord only. The Baals and the Ashtaroths were the gods of fertility. They were gods that required sexual deviancy and worship. They were the gods that Israel had gravitated towards because human beings will always gravitate away from God and towards the seediest sin. Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured out the water before the Lord, and they fasted that day and said, Now here it is, We have sinned against the Lord. And if they had come to that conclusion, back in chapter 4, when they asked, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? 
If they had come to that conclusion then, they would have saved themselves a lot of heartache. If they had done the internal, internal evaluation of their hearts, instead of simply going after whatever it is they wanted to go after, in that, in that case, in that circumstance, a victory over the Philistines, and trying to drag God along with them into His plan, into their plans, if they had done the internal evaluation to ask why a holy and unapproachable God was not with them, they would have saved themselves the heartache. Here they said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel will judge the children of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to the battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone, set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far, the Lord has helped us. So we begin by trying to force God to help us. And we end by raising up a stone and calling it Ebenezer as a recognition, a grateful recognition that we have only come this far because God has chosen to help us. Now you may have heard that word Ebenezer in the song that we sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, right? Because the second verse of that says, Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. Thus far, God has helped us. That's what Ebenezer means. That's what the song means. Every Christian who sings that song, Here I raise mine Ebenezer, to this day, here we are at the end of September, at the end of 2020, and how have any of us made it to this point? How have we avoided death? How have we avoided spiritual bankruptcy? How have we avoided the natural consequence of our sin? Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure, if you are pleased, God, safely to arrive one day at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God to rescue me from danger he interposed his precious blood. Christian, can you say that you are where you are only by the help of God? And is your hope for tomorrow, is your hope for the next week, for the next year, in earthly things, in idols that you've made, in good luck charms that you carry with you, in treasures that you've stored up in your bank account? 
Where is your hope and the help of the one true living God? And I hope by thy good pleasure one day safely to arrive at home. God, please keep us and be with us and help us. Jesus in John 6 had said very difficult things to a large crowd of people and he watched a huge crowd of thousands turn their backs on him and walk away and he turns to the disciples that remain, you know, Peter, James, John, those guys, and he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life and also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's why I follow Jesus. Because I have come to know that He is Messiah. He is Savior. He is Redeemer. The Son. The fleshly, the physical, the manifestation of the one true living God. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we struggle with why things happen and we search for answers, that we'll have enough spiritual awareness to always humble our hearts before you and ask ourselves the question, who is worthy to approach a holy God? We are not your judges, just as we are not your craftsmen. We have not made you in our image, but you have made us in your image. We are not your judge. You may do as you please. We thank you for whatever help you've given us in this life. We acknowledge your help. We acknowledge that we are only here by your help. Spiritually, we are only here by your work. You have helped us in Jesus. You have redeemed us. You have saved us. Now, Father, I ask that you would call to the hearts of your people, those who are wandering, return to me. Let them hear the call of their God, return to me. Let them return and offer their lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you, which is our reasonable service. Help us to return to you, the one true, holy, living God, who alone has taken on flesh, who alone has borne the burden of our sin, who alone has conquered death to give us victory over the grave, and who alone remains as King of kings and Lord of lords one day to return to this earth in power and glory an offering of tumors and rats will pale in comparison to the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, is Lord. We don't serve idols. We serve you, our Master. Let our lives be spent for your glory. We thank you for our eternal redemption. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.